You strive to innovate, to propel payments forward. But what if you could do even more, access more people, and add more value? With Discover Global Network, you can. Accepted in more than 200 countries, with over 270 million cardholders around the globe, we help you grow further, faster. As the world's fastest growing payments network, see just how much progress we can make together. Discover Global Network. Accelerate progress. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. Eight days from now, millions of American voters will cast a decisive vote to end Donald J. Trump's divisive and destructive reign of power. Despite all the noise and chaos engendered by the president in these final days, his stoking of nativist rage and his use of Russian disinformation, America will move on without him. And finally, and once and for all, we can turn the channel of this failed reality show experiment. You're fired. Donald Trump will be enshrined for eternity as the man who brought this nation to the brink. He will be remembered not for his deeds and actions, but for the shameful national emergency he wrought through his own negligence and incompetence. It's not my fault that he came here, it's China's fault. Through his ugly and toxic rhetoric, he made us fear one another trying desperately to tear this country apart. African-Americans, Hispanics are living in hell because it's so dangerous. You walk down the street, you get shot. His trafficking in conspiracy and disinformation made us challenge the very fabric of reality. He tested our resolve and national character by challenging the very fundamentals of decency. He mocked goodness and feigned piety. He lied, cajoled, bullied and brought America into the depths of its own worst impulses. He governed by tantrum and tweet. He sucked up to dictators, embraced white supremacists, and wrapped his arms around extremists of all stripes. And then I guess uh, they said she was threatened, right? She said was threatened. And she blamed me. She blamed me. He has been, quite simply, our very worst American president. History will judge Trump poorly as an outlier, an anomaly, a tumor on our body politic that we ultimately cut away and rejected. He's already too terrible to fathom a political boogeyman we will talk about in the darkness. Hello. I want to play a game. Only this is too simplistic a tale. Donald Trump did not govern alone. His accomplices kept him in a position of power and cleared the way for his darkest impulses. The president's men and women who worked behind the scenes to deliver this national nightmare must not be spared either. Chief among these co-conspirators is Attorney General Bill Barr, Trump's chubby Roy Cohn in an ill-fitting suit. His own abuse of power and destruction of democratic norms must be examined and judged. To be clear, Attorney generals are most definitely political actors who serve at the pleasure of the president and need their trust and confidence in order to effectively perform their role. However, as this country's chief law enforcement officer, overseeing what has been called the world's largest law office, 
The AG is supposed to ensure that our nation's laws are administered fully and fairly. By this standard, Barr's tenure as President Donald Trump's Attorney General has been an abject failure. More than 1,100 former officials with the Department of Justice are calling on Attorney General William Barr to step down. This morning, the President congratulated Barr for his involvement. Attorney General William Barr ought to be ashamed and embarrassed and resign. Democrats charge Barr with enabling an abuse of power. According to a June 23rd report from the Alliance for Justice, Barr, who in public remarks has made clear he is a hyperpartisan, has used the power of his office to act as Trump's personal attorney, to reward Trump's political donors, supporters, and friends, to punish Trump's perceived enemies, and to subvert Justice Department enforcement of critical laws, all to advance Trump's political agenda. I think, as you know, uh, I've commented uh, since I have been Attorney General and, and even during my confirmation hearings that over the past few decades uh, there have been increasing attempts to use the criminal justice system as a uh, political weapon. The legal tactic has been to gin up uh, allegations of criminality uh, by one's political opponents based uh, on the flimsiest of, of legal theories. This is not a good development. This is not good for our political life, and it's not good for the criminal justice system. And as long as I'm attorney general, the criminal justice system will not be used for uh, partisan political ends. The report details Barr's recent abuses of power, including his unprecedented efforts to block publication of John Bolton's book, his attempts to remove Jeffrey Berman as U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and his commandeering of military forces to attack peaceful protesters in Lafayette Park using rubber bullets, tear gas, and stun grenades to make way for the president's photo op. All right, Attorney General William Barr says the decision to force out protesters near the White House a week ago was not related to President Trump's photo op that evening. This, of course, is merely the tip of the iceberg. Since day one, Bill Barr has been in Donald Trump's pocket. He put his thumb on the scale to help cover up Robert Mueller's investigation, arranging for leniency for Trump friends like Roger Stone and Michael Flynn while jailing Trump's enemies, like me. This is the man who put me in solitary confinement for writing a book. He has used the power of his office to politicize what was once an independent judiciary and has struck at the heart of our democracy. These phony investigations, the Mueller investigation was a a waste of time from day one. They knew it was a waste of time. It proved to be a waste of time. Uh, I think there are a lot of bad people involved, and they should pay a very big price if they were caught. So we'll see what happens. But I rely on the Attorney General. He's a very honorable man. With this in mind, my next guest represents the sad and shameful destruction of our democratic norms under Bill Barr. Philip Halpern was a career prosecutor in the Justice Department for 36 years. He served under 19 different attorney generals and six presidents. He prosecuted some of California's biggest federal corruption cases, including former Republican Congressman Duncan Hunter, who pled guilty in December to conspiracy to steal campaign funds. But last week, he quit in disgust at what he saw as Barr's resentment toward the rule of law prosecutors and his shameful and stunning abuse of power. 
He wrote a scathing rebuke of the AG in an op-ed for the San Diego Union Tribune that has since garnered national attention, accusing Attorney General Bill Barr of abusing his power to sway the election for President Trump and said he was quitting, making him the third sitting prosecutor to issue a rare public repudiation of the Attorney General. Philip Halpern has had enough. He spent 36 years as a federal prosecutor for the U.S. Department of Justice, based in San Diego, winning high-profile cases, including corruption prosecutions against members of Congress. Now, he says Attorney General William Barr has turned his back on the rule of law. He wrote that, I always believed the department's past leaders were dedicated to the rule of law and the guiding principle that justice is blind. That is a bygone era, but it should not be forgotten. He called Mr. Barr a well-trained bureaucrat without prosecutorial experience and alleging that he scorned honest, apolitical prosecutors and selectively meddled in the criminal justice system to help Mr. Trump's allies. Halpern said he would have quit earlier but stayed on because he worried that the department under Mr. Barr would have interfered in the prosecution of former Representative Duncan D. Hunter. Barr's resentment toward rule of law prosecutors became increasingly difficult to ignore, as did his slavish obedience to Donald Trump's will, says Halpern. This career bureaucrat seems determined to turn our democracy into an autocracy. Bill Barr is the most dangerous man in America right now, with his ability to intervene on Trump's behalf and deliver him the election a la carte. It's crucial that we know what Barr will do. Let's listen now to that conversation. Phil, thanks so much for joining us today on Mea Culpa. I want to jump right into this and ask you, when Bill Barr first took over at AG, were you at all relieved that he would restore a sense of normalcy to justice after Sessions and Whitaker? And when did that hope, though, turn to fear? And when did that fear turn to horror that this man was trying to destroy democracy? Well, Michael, first of all, let me say uh, uh, I appreciate uh, coming on your show. Thank you for having me. Uh, there are a couple questions there. And uh, handling the first one, was I relieved when uh, Bill Barr took over? I won't say I was relieved. Uh, I was pleased that he took over. There was a fairly stormy uh, reign of Jeff Sessions uh, before Matt Whitaker came on board. I think a lot of people in the department questioned uh, Matt's uh, bona fides to be the attorney general. So when somebody who was a known quantity, who had previously served as attorney general, uh, came into power, I think there were many people in the Department of Justice that were hopefully, they were optimistic that things would get better. Second question, uh, I guess, would be, uh, when were those hopes dashed? Well, from the outset, uh, it was clear that Bill Barr was going to continue with many of the policies that had been put in place by President Trump and Jeff Sessions regarding uh, immigrants. Uh, the most troubling one, of course, was the separation of families and the taking of children away from uh, their parents. However, I was not concerned, though, with what I came to find was an intolerable situation, even worse than general immigration policy, and that was when the attorney general started doing the bidding of Donald Trump directly, as opposed to doing his job, which is to represent the American people. 
He's not Donald Trump's personal lawyer. He's the lawyer for the American people. And as soon as I got a sense that he was acting uh, for Donald Trump and not for the cause of justice, I became very, very worried. Uh, the first time that happened, I guess, would be with the Mueller report and how he initially held on to the report, didn't let uh, Mueller issue it directly. And then he misrepresented to the American people what was in that report in such a way that it was attempting to whitewash the wrongdoing of Donald Trump. I found that particularly troublesome. Uh, and it's not only me, many of my colleagues, and of course, uh, Judge Reggie Walton uh, with the US District Court found particularly that the Attorney General showed, and these are his words, not mine, a lack of candor in regards to what he had done. Uh, as an attorney, you know what that means. When a federal judge says somebody has a lack of candor, it's as close as you can come to saying that he doesn't trust or believe what that person is saying. When the head of the Justice Department, is, uh, his ethics are called into question by a federal judge, it's troubling, especially when the normal public could look at it. And once you saw what was in the Mueller report, you could see how the AG was misrepresenting the damning conclusions of it to try to protect President Trump. At that time, I thought, maybe it's just a mistake. Maybe it's a, you know, everybody's entitled to the benefit of the doubt, whether you're, you know, the man walking on the street or you're the attorney general. And that could have been a solitary misstep. Maybe he had pressure put on him. Maybe he didn't realize how badly he was misrepresenting it. Uh, I was hoping for the best. And it was only when it became a pattern in practice of the attorney general representing the president's interests rather than the interest of the American public that I became truly concerned and was worried about the direction where the country was heading. Give me an example of that on one of these final insults, uh, okay. or final abuse that made you say, you know what, uh-uh, no more. I've had enough. It's gonna be really hard to pick one, but if we had to talk about three, I would put them all together and say, the meddling, the selective meddling in the Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, and Michael Flynn cases. Uh, in all three of those cases, he took steps that were frightening to people who were career prosecutors. Uh, the Roger Stone uh, prosecution team quit in protest when he started tampering with the sentencing recommendation, something that's unprecedented. Then in the Michael Flynn case, he went so far as to move to dismiss charges, again, causing a rebellion on the prosecutors who were handling that case. Uh, because we had an individual who had pled guilty not once but twice, and on what was clearly a pretextual reason, something trumped up, a trumped up explanation having to do with materiality that frankly a first year law student wouldn't believe. He went and went to dismiss these charges. And fortunately, ju uh, Judge Emmett Sullivan has so far stopped him from doing that. But when we look at these three cases, we see a pattern in practice of selective meddling at the behest of the president. And let me make it clear, 
when you're the attorney general of the United States, you have a right to exercise your judgment. That's why you get paid the big bucks. I'm okay with that. The thing that bothers career prosecutors is that he was doing so selectively. He wasn't going into dozens of cases and meddling. It turns out the only cases he was meddling were in cases where people had damning information about the president of the United States. All of these people potentially were linked to crimes with Donald Trump. And his selective meddling in these cases was something that just about every career prosecutor who talked to me about it found intolerable and clearly unprecedented. Nothing since we've seen the dirty tricks of John Mitchell during Watergate about a half a century ago. And John Mitchell, as you'll recall, went to jail for his actions, selectively trying to get the president reelected. So I would say it's this group of charges that really upset me, although there were many more. Let me talk about one that was personal to me. And I won't even start with the first scenario of what brought me to the prison in the first place. I'm talking about the second when I was released and then returned, remanded back to Otisville based upon what Judge Hellerstein ruled to be retaliatory. And that case reads Michael Cohen versus Attorney General Bill Barr, Michael Carvajal, um, Warden Petrucci, uh, and others. But the lead defendant is Attorney General Bill Barr. What are career prosecutors saying about that? Because in all fairness, career prosecutors didn't give a flying shit about the really the um, prosecution of me in the first place. So what were their what was their thoughts, or at least your thoughts in regard to the second remand? Well, I can tell you, in, in my forty years, I have never seen anything like this. And again, this is something that concerned me greatly. And. I should qualify that, Michael, and I think it's important for you to know what is doubly disturbing. I understand how disturbing it is uh, for you, but what is doubly disturbing, I had never seen anything like this in 40 years, except under Bill Barr's Department of Justice. Amazingly, you were not the only person where Bill Barr was using the civil process in arms of the Justice Department to selectively meddle in a situation where he had no business. Clearly, he was trying to silence you from attacking Donald Trump, from publishing a book, from having a podcast. But in that way, he's no different from what he did with Stephanie Wolkoff, attempting to bring in the Department of Justice so that she would not publish a book that was critical of Melania Trump. And again, similarly, it is the exact same tactic which again, I find completely reprehensible and closer to something you'd find in Russia or China or uh, Hungary than you'd find in the United States when he had the Justice Department intervene in E. Jean Carroll's lawsuit, her lawsuit where she was complaining about being sexually assaulted by President Trump. And again, there's the numerous times he's used the Department of Justice to intervene in cases to stop the disclosure of his tax returns. And what you see in all of these cases, and yours being you know, perhaps the most prominent example, but you see a attorney general who is willing to do the president's personal billing. You have 
William Barr acting as Donald Trump's consigliere. There's no other way to put it. He is acting like an attorney would for a crime boss, and he's using all of the legal powers at his disposal, which, as you know, are quite substantial when we're talking about the Department of Justice, against citizens for the president's benefit. That's a situation that every single person in this country should find appalling, not just yourself, but every American citizen should be scared when we have an attorney general that is willing to go after the president's political adversaries or perceived enemies. That's a problem. Well, then what happened, for example, with Reality Winner, uh, the young lady who was the whistleblower regarding Russia, uh, Russia's interference into our electoral process, and that she's now in prison for three and a half years. And every attempt in order to have her released has been denied. No, I I understand what you're saying uh, with her. And again, I don't want to generalize too much because I'm not aware of all the specifics of that case. What I can say is another thing that is deeply disturbing to me about the way our Justice Department is being used is the entire misuse of the Russian investigation to further Donald Trump's aims. The fact that it's possible, in fact, we know because not only do we have the Mueller report, but more important than that, we have the Senate Intelligence uh, Select Committee report, which is far more detailed than the Mueller report and shows clearly the fact that there were members of the Trump campaign, most notably Paul Manafort, that were working hand in glove with the Russians in order to assist uh, and help Donald Trump's first time election. And the president has ignored that, continues to deny it to this day and try to blame it on the Ukraine, even though his own handpicked director of the FBI, Chris Ray, says there's no evidence of that. And even though a Senate committee led by uh, Ron Johnson found no evidence you know, of that at all. There is simply no evidence to find out that a foreign power was colluding with Biden or Hunter Biden or uh, Obama or anybody else. And we have an entire distortion of the Justice Department so that instead of investigating accurate ties between Russia and the United States. We have the Justice Department in the form of the Durham investigation, John Durham being the prosecutor who was handpicked. And again, in a very, very odd way, but something that is become symptomatic of the way that the Justice Department handles these things, handpicking AUSAs or US attorneys, not from Maine DOJ, but from Texas or Pittsburgh or Connecticut, friendly U.S. attorneys to investigate what normally would done, be done by the department. In the guise of the Durham investigation, again, I know I'm getting into the weeds, but it's, it's important. No, the weeds are extremely important because I want the listeners to understand just how the system is being manipulated by Donald Trump via Bill Barr. Okay. And I think it's really important. Well, okay. It all comes down to how he's picking people and who he's picking. 
Uh, John Durham, for example, because he's the one who's in charge of the so-called Russia investigation, the so-called uh, question of whether Obama and former Vice President Joe Biden had anything to do with, you know, uh, secretly wiretapping his campaign or trying somehow to sabotage his campaign. You have to first understand where they where he came from. And John Durham, and again, this is in the weeds, but uh, it's easily checkable by all your listeners who are interested, first came to prominence apart from the organized crime work he was doing in Connecticut when he was handpicked to do an investigation of Abu Ghraib and potential misuse torturing by the CIA there. So he was handpicked to do a special investigation there and nothing came of it. And what we've seen from that is that there were some low level people who were charged, but never anybody uh, higher up in the CIA or nobody higher up in the military. So all of the torture allegations were basically either, depending on how you want to look at it, swept under a rug, or it was decided to put it behind, to move forward and not look back at what happened. And you can read that depending on what your political persuasion is or how you read history. No one's political persuasion should be permitting somebody to torture another person, whether or not, you know, Donald Trump says that waterboarding is good or it isn't. But I did want to then turn around and ask you, in your op-ed, you purposefully avoided using the word resign. And instead, you said you were fleeing the institution. Describe why you chose those words precisely. Well, I didn't want anybody to get the wrong idea, number one. I was fleeing, and I have been fleeing for quite some time. But I didn't use the word resign because, frankly, I stayed on a lot longer than I was going to stay on. I would have left the department months and months and months before I did. And the only reason I stayed on was because of the fact that I was handling a politically sensitive case. That was the case against uh, Congressman Duncan Hunter. Congressman Duncan Hunter, who's a congressman from the San Diego area, he represents East County, San Diego, up into uh, Riverside County as well. He was one of the first two supporters of Donald Trump, candidate Donald Trump, along with Representative Chris Collins, who was a Republican in upstate New York. So these were the first two people who Donald Trump got to back him for his presidency in Congress. Coincidentally, or perhaps not coincidentally, they were both charged for crimes that they committed. I think they were both charged under the former administration, the Obama in, uh, administration, but those crimes carried on into the uh, uh, Trump administration. So both of these early supporters were charged with crimes. And Jeff Sessions was tweeted at by President Trump. And while I'll paraphrase the tweet, it was basically, good job, Jeff, you allow two loyal Republicans to be prosecuted and you're going to, these seats are now going to go to Democrats in the upcoming election. And these, this was one of the first signs at how upset he was at Jeff Sessions for not doing, you know, his bidding across the board. So when I heard that as a line prosecutor trying to prosecute a politician who's corrupt, the president of the United States is tweeting about my case saying he's unhappy with the outcome. I was very nervous. And then when I witnessed how under Bill Barr, the, uh, 
the Justice Department was willing to meddle in cases at the president's bidding, I was very upset and I made the decision I needed to stay on and finish that case to make sure it was done and that nobody was going to stop it. You know, the president doesn't seem to understand just how powerful that tweets are and the fact that those people that are loyal to Trump read those tweets, they accept those tweets, and then they act upon that tweets, which I believe in my specific case, Judge William H. Pauley III certainly saw the tweets that Donald Trump put out about me in terms that I should be locked up for years and that the harshest sentence should be given to me. Now, Lanny Davis, who was on television many, many times talking about my case and showing slides, talks continuously about selective prosecution. I mean, I received a 36-month sentence, and we'll get into that in, in later, but Trump doesn't realize just how these tweets affect people. And the worst part about it is that people like myself and others, we accept these tweets, previously me, right? We accept these tweets and then they act upon it. And that's a very, very big problem. I think you make a very good point. And what I want to say is it's not just about Michael Cohn's case. And part of the, I don't know if you want to say it's the genius of Donald Trump, if you want to say it's the evil machinations of Donald Trump. He has somehow convinced the public by saying so many outrageous things that after a while, people just say, oh, it's just Donald Trump. What you were talking about has been unheard of. It, the president of the United States should not weigh in on individual cases. The president of the United States tweeting that somebody should be prosecuted, especially if it's one of his enemies as you were at that point, or a political adversary, whether it's Hillary Clinton, whether it's Barack Obama, whether it's Vice President Joe Biden. These are the earmarks of a autocracy. These are the earmarks of a dictatorship. The people in this country, I think somehow, don't understand how corrosive this is of our democracy. I wrote the editorial I wrote because I was concerned with our democracy. And one of the main reasons I'm concerned with the democracy is because we have a crazy man at this point, I can say, in the White House who is acting in ways that no president should ever act. Or has, or has ever act. Probably not since Warren Harding, at any rate, and, and okay, Richard Nixon. I, I stand corrected. How difficult was it for you to come forward and to discuss your opposition to Bill Barr. Because part of the historical success of the Justice Department is that its prosecutors are inherently apolitical. And very few have spoken out. So describe to me your reservation in doing so. And have you been contacted at all by fellow prosecutors still in the trenches, either thanking you or disparaging you for speaking out? Okay, once again, there, there, there are a couple... Uh... Uh, points there I want to uh, address separately. Uh, the first one, and uh, if I'm getting them right, and if I forget any, please remind me, but the first one was how difficult was it for me to uh, step forward? And it was extremely difficult, and it was something that weighed on me heavily for quite some time. And the reason is simple. It, it's not because of any vow of silence or, or, or omerta. It's like, 
we don't talk about our dirty linen, you know, outside the department, but it was simply because my love of the department. And I, and again, this may be hard for you to understand and your listeners may or may not want to believe this, but in my entire 36 year career, I almost never had what I would consider improper influence on me from uh, main justice. Uh, there was one time uh, where it came from the White House when I was attempting to prosecute the executive director of the CIA. Uh, and that fortunately had a, had a good ending as uh, uh, we were able to move forward. But other than that one incident, most of the time, it's just Washington being nervous. It's not trying to take uh, a political agenda one way or the other. So, you know, that to me was very important. The people I work with, and again, I can't speak for all prosecutors, but the people I work with in general are really loyal, honest people trying to do their best for the people of the United States. I know that's why I stayed in government. Uh, I turned down many lucrative offers because I believed in what I did. So it was really hard to to say something that was so hurtful about the Department of Justice. But I wanna make it clear, my statement and the reason I did it, this goes to your second point, is not because of the Department of Justice and the people in it. It's because of the leadership of the Department of Justice. It's about Bill Barr and the people up at the top that he's listening to and the fact that he's taking orders from the president and has forgotten the motto of the Department of Justice, which is not to serve the president, but it's to faithfully execute the laws of the United States for the people of the United States, not the president of the United States. And again, perhaps Bill Barr doesn't know what every single prosecutor says when they get up in court. Every single time I've ever stood up before a jury the first time, I say it's my privilege to represent the people of the United States, not the president. Now, Bill Barr has never tried a single case, you know, for the department, never indicted a case. So perhaps being a bureaucrat, he would lose track of what our real responsibility is. Well, let me say this, because there's obviously plenty of books that are written about, um, we'll call it the Department of Injustice, including the ones by Sidney Powell. Um, and then she co-authored another one, which is called The Conviction Machine, where they turn around and they emphatically state that prosecutors today are no longer concerned about prosecuting cases. It's all about convictions. And that's one of the first things that prosecutors will tell you. I have a 98% conviction rate. And if you think that you're going to be part of that 2%, well, good luck because we're tying up all your capital. We're going to hit you with forfeiture, which has ultimately become unconstitutional. You're not going to have anything. We're going to end up throwing the book at you, and we're going to bring in members of your family as well. What's the purpose of them doing that? Why, so that they could end up with a seven-figure job over at one of the big firms? like Lowenstein Sandler, Davis Polk? If you're telling me, Michael, that prosecutors have enormous power and sometimes some of them may misuse that power, I'd say, you know, it's certainly pos possible. It does happen from time to time. And I'm not going to take issue with it, but I have to say- Have you ever seen it? I would never put up with it. In any case I've ever supervised and in ones I've worked with, I wouldn't allow it to happen. Does it happen? Yeah, it probably does happen occasionally, but I have to tell you, and again, yeah, this isn't a message that I'm doing for any political reason. Uh, I worked because I loved it. 
And I, what I loved about it, you know, was that I felt I was doing the right thing. I started out as a defense attorney. That's what I wanted to be. The only reason I'm not a defense attorney is because there was a hiring freeze at the Manhattan Federal uh, Public Defender's Office, because that's what I wanted to be. Uh, I wanted to be a public defender in Manhattan representing, you know, the people. And but by a wild quirk of fate, you know, where I had a friend who was a prosecutor and I was offered a job without even sending in a resume or applying, a job I first turned down. Uh, but because the hiring freeze continued, I became a prosecutor. And it took me several years before I understood if you're an honest prosecutor, if you're a good prosecutor, you can help people more so than you could ever do as a defense attorney. And it's that power, which, as you say, can be abused, that I was able to exercise cautiously and judiciously. I could decide, and I understand, the power not to charge somebody, as I think you'll agree, is every bit as important as the power to charge. And it's every single prosecutor's absolute duty. If somebody's not guilty, or he just thinks maybe he is guilty, but I might have difficulty proving it, not to charge that person. And as long as we have people in the Department of Justice that will follow those dictates, we're okay. If we have people, whether they work for Rudy Giuliani in New York, whether they work for Berman, you know, the I believe the U.S. attorney, when you were charged in New York, That's right. or, or whether they work for William Barr, that power can be abused. Hopefully the people who are in charge will not let it be abused, but that's something that we have to worry about. And that's why I'm here because I worry about the attorney general putting pressure on individual prosecutors in important cases, because you know what? We don't, you know, we don't get paid. Maybe it's because I spent most of my career in San Diego, you know, in Southern California. And the prosecutors I've worked with here have been some of the most honorable people I've ever met. And, you know, I'm still proud to be part of the Department of Justice. This is a dark moment. I don't want to be part of the Department of Justice of Bill Barr. And, and so you should be. However, President Trump, along with Bill Barr and Jeffrey Berman and guys like, um, you know, Rudy Giuliani, they've weaponized the Department of Justice and it's a very, very dangerous uh, situation. Do you think, is there any historical precedent for this level of abuse that's going on right now. I mean, John Mitchell under Richard Nixon weaponized the Justice Department to punish Nixon's enemies. Or does Barr's behavior eclipse all of them? I have to say the parallels between uh, William Barr and John Mitchell are staggering. And the dirty tricks that we saw John Mitchell doing 50 years ago are very similar to what we see from the present Attorney General. Uh, I would point uh, in particular to uh, some of the use of federal troops and tear gas against protesters, which we saw uh, during the Nixon administration, uh, most notably in uh, the most troubling time they were used were obviously in Kent State where protesters were killed, you know, protesting the Vietnam War. But the troops and tear gas in Lafayette Park, for example, uh, so the president could have a photo op holding a Bible upside down. You know, a book he's probably never read, you know, and doesn't know what's in. But that was upsetting. And it was upsetting because it was done at the president's direction for the president. Uh, simply, uh, similarly, sending uh, troops into Portland, Oregon, before they were requested by the governor of Oregon uh, to help quell uh, Black Lives Matter 
protests. He was doing it in New York until Cuomo said, I don't think so. He wanted to do it in Chicago. I mean, he's creating his own militia. But how deep do you think that this is lasting? And do you think that the damage is irre is irreparable? No, I, I don't. I think there is serious damage, but I think the Justice Department can right itself if we have an attorney general just committed to the rule of law again. I have served under, I think it's 19 different uh, attorneys general and before Bill Barr, even under Jeff Sessions, <laughs> which is probably why he was fired, I was never as disturbed uh, uh, and I was never as worried about an attorney general that was simply in lockstep with the president. Another example, and again, I, I could give example after example, would be his failure, number one, to even make a comment when armed right-wing militia went into the Michigan state capitol. Uh, at that point, President Trump, in support of those, tweeted, liberate Michigan. And they took it seriously because remember what I write in Disloyal and I talk about it on this podcast all the time. Donald Trump is a mobster and he talks in code. So when he's saying liberate Michigan, he's not saying it the way you would say liberate Michigan. He's saying it to those individuals that have an agenda, a silent agenda, and he's passing them a silent message. Uh, I, I, I understand, you know, uh, the dog whistles and the, and sometimes the direct references that Donald Trump makes. What concerned me from the Department of Justice, you know, rather than just be American citizen, from my vantage point in the Department of Justice, what I found so disturbing about that was once that tweet went out, then the attorney general went out of his way to discuss the governor's public health order, which is some of your listeners will remember, was simply to stay at home, to wear masks, et cetera. The attorney general, after the president's tweet, said that was the greatest intrusion on civil liberties since slavery. That's crazy talk. That's absolutely crazy talk. And it also made it clear to me that we had an attorney general that was simply willing to do whatever bidding the president wanted, no matter how cowardly or dastardly. And that, you know, was upsetting to me. Well, you actually, it was so upsetting that you wrote in, um, in a scathing op-ed for the San Diego Union Tribune that this career bureaucrat seems determined to turn our democracy into an autocracy. And describe for me, if you would, the very deliberate steps that you witnessed that gave you this impression. If we continue to go down the list, you know, after the Mueller report, the Manafort, Stone and Flynn cases, the tear gassing uh, in Lafayette Park in Portland, Oregon, the response to the uh, right wing militia. There are, in fact, many others. And uh, one of the things that I find particularly disturbing at this time in our history and at this time in our election cycle is the misleading statements that the attorney general has made about mail-in voter fraud, talking about how it's widespread and if we allow it, you know, horrible things are going to happen. This, again, is simply echoing what the president says, even though, of course, he, he mail-ins his own ballot. But this is very, very disturbing because this, again, questioning the legitimacy of the election questioning your political opponents, trying to you know, argue that they should be indicted and locked up. 
these are the hallmarks of a third rate, you know, uh, tin pot, you know, totalitarian regime, not one of the world's greatest democracies. Except what Bill Barr is doing with that by echoing Donald Trump's words is he's setting it's a precursor for what is going to come. And that is Donald Trump challenging the results of the election. As I said before the House Oversight Committee, there will never be a peaceful transition of power under Donald Trump. And what they're doing is they're setting up into your mind as the listener, into your mind as the American citizen, that this is coming because no matter what happens other than Trump winning the election, which is not going to happen, he's setting up that you know that they're going to be challenging this legally. Because you said actually in an interview with NPR that, frankly, Barr has served previously before and loyally before. The fact of the matter is, it probably comes down to the person that he's working for. Do you believe that Trump has some kind of leverage over Barr that he's using to force him into towing the line? And how does something like this even happen? Was there precedent in his past that he had these autocratic tendencies? I pray and hope you are wrong. I'm not saying you are. I think it's all too possible that we are going to have a very, very messy election. And I think Donald Trump is going to, uh, you know, may very well contest the election. I'm praying he doesn't. What worries me the most is that he is going to explicitly tweet and tell his followers that the election results were rigged. And in fact, in doing so, cause violence. We've already seen this a little bit with, with the arrests of the people in Michigan who were threatening the governor. Phil, they didn't threaten her. They were going to kidnap and kill her. This is a this is a far cry. I want to ask you, when you were in the Justice Department, in what ways did Bill Barr affect your day-to-day -day working environment? Did he intervene in any of your cases? And if so, how does the pressure that he exerts on prosecutors come to bear? I can't psychoanalyze Bill Barr. I don't want to get into his what he's thinking. I, I believe he has served the country loyally in the past. Perhaps he's more conservative than me, perhaps not. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, I do check my party politics at the door when I'm a DOJ employee. He served under George H.W. Bush, and I he served as my attorney general. I had no issues with what he did then. I might not have agreed with all policies, but I had no issues. The real difference in Bill Barr, because I think he may have always had these tendencies, is the person he's working for and what he's being asked to do. I think he's always been a great believer in presidential power. I think he firmly as an intellectual believes the president should have uh, this much power. The problem is when you have a president who doesn't obey norms, who doesn't obey constitutional principles, who asks the attorney general to do things that are improper, Bill Barr has shown in general, and I won't say every time, but in general, he has shown an unwillingness to follow the appropriate course of conduct and instead do the president's bidding, which he somehow convinces himself is appropriate because he's the president. So that's number one. I think Bill Barr's issue here is that he's too willing to follow the president's lead. And we have a president who is basically giving more and more unhinged statements and tweets that he's following. Bill Barr in and of himself is not just tampering with my work on a daily basis. He's not 
tampering with the thousands of prosecutors across the country. He is only tampering when the president, you know, instructs him to, implies he should, or he thinks the president wants him to. So the only time a prosecutor is going to have a problem is when he's prosecuting something that the president thinks is of value because it's a president's adversary or it's a president's friend, a uh, president's financial interest. These are the cases that you have to worry about. You, if you believe you were treated unfairly, well, you were an adversary of the president. And that's the problem here. We can't have the attorney general, the Department of Justice, being extra lenient towards friends of the president and being extra harsh towards adversaries of the president. And that was my concern. Bill Barr's other policies were the policies of the Trump administration. And that shows you that elections have consequences. If you don't like the immigration policies in the United States, it's really, really important to go out there and vote for somebody who will change them, both presidents and senators, because it takes both. The fact is that the president can have executive orders, which could be band-aids on the immigration policy. But the only real way we could change our immigration policy is if we have a Congress, that's a you know, representatives and senators who are willing to pass a law, a comprehensive immigration package, which could give legal status to the dreamers. It could give a path to citizenship for legal immigrants wanting to come in here and work, asylum seekers. That can't be done by the president. It has to be done by our government. It'll never be done bipartisan when you have a president that is so off the rails when it comes to his ideology separate children and then blame it on coyotes and and so i mean it's it's beyond nonsensical he has no idea what he's talking about which is why there will never be a bipartisan bill passed but i wanted to refer to you had a scathing op-ed in the san diego union tribune and you wrote Barr's longest running politicization of the justice department is the Durham investigation, something you mentioned before, a quixotic pursuit designed to attack the president's political rivals, confirming his scorn for honest apolitical prosecutors. Barr refers to some as headhunters who pursue ill-conceived charges against prominent political figures. If you would, describe to me in detail how Barr operationalized his scorn to personally intervene in these cases. Well, if we talk first about the headhunters, you'd be talking about the prosecutors who were prosecuting Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, and Michael Flynn. You'd also be talking about, I guess, uh, myself for prosecuting Duncan Hunter, maybe the prosecutor of Chris uh, Collins in New York. These are people who were Trump viewed as friendly. So you'd be a headhunter if you tried to get a conviction of one of those people. On the other hand, the Durham investigation, as I said, it's simply a witch hunt trying to find connections between the Ukraine and the 2016 election and Obama, Joe Biden, and Hunter Biden. Now, the thing that's so troubling about this is two Republican Senate panels already investigated this and rejected allegations of Joe Biden doing anything improper with the Ukraine. The FBI found no evidence of tampering with Trump's 2016 campaign and the Bidens. And in fact, as I think the record shows, Joe Biden, when he was vice president, acted in a way that would have been contrary 
to any interests that Burisma had and his son had. The exact opposite of what would have happened. So again, this has been investigated up, down, and center, and there's been no finding of wrongdoing. But yet, the president convinced Bill Barr to empower John Durham to investigate these connections, and thus far they found nothing. But himself, he personally took part in them. He went to Italy with John uh, Durham to investigate this. That's unheard of. In 40 years, I've never heard of the Attorney General of the United States, especially one who's not even a prosecutor and has never prosecuted a case, going along with a real prosecutor to try to investigate something. You talk about political pressure, having the Attorney General of the United States looking over your shoulder. And this pressure is not something that's theoretical. We saw with the resignation of one member of Durham's team, while she didn't speak out about uh, the pressure, she made it clear that she resigned due to pressure that she was getting from the leadership in the Department of Justice. And that pressure, although she didn't say it, was clearly to do the bidding of the president and the attorney general, which was to dig up evidence against Joe Biden and uh, Hunter Biden and Barack Obama, evidence that clearly we've seen through an FBI and Senate probes doesn't exist. This is as troubling as it gets. I can't help to keep saying this. Having an attorney general launch an investigation into your political opponents, that's way closer to Vladimir Putin's government and governing style than it is to ours. But Donald Trump needs to do this, and he needs to do this because he knows that he's losing the election. He knows that he's lost the silent majority because he's out of his mind. And the things that he's doing are turning off the the populace here, other than that 36% that he likes to say, I can kill someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. And with these people, he can. And everybody else is finally turning around and saying, look, that whole notion of Let's shake up the system. Let's, let's really shake up the politicians. Let's bring in a businessman. Let's bring in Donald Trump, who's, got a, who's the art of the deal, best negotiator in the world. Well, now we're learning that he's probably not the best negotiator in the world. He could actually be at the bottom of the list. And I'm not around to fix the poll in order to bring him to the top. But I do want to ask you, as a prosecutor, if you were given the task of making a case against Bill Barr, for crimes committed while serving as attorney general. What would be inside your indictment and why? I, I want to make this clear. I am Bill Barr's number one critic. There's no question about that. Uh, I, you know, I would like others to come out. You asked me a question before of what feedback I've had. Uh, so I'll give you the good and the bad. I've had an amazing outpouring from scores of people all over the country, you know, who've represented offices all over the country, whether it's the Department of Justice, Southern District of New York, Chicago, LA, San Diego, uh, who have privately contacted me or contacted me through third parties sometimes to tell me what a good job I did. And they're so happy I, I stepped forward. But I don't want you to think for one second that I'm universally loved in the department. Obviously, I mean, just yesterday, uh, several of my colleagues, whom I like, 
uh, wrote a letter to the editor saying I didn't represent their opinions and, you know, and they didn't they didn't feel what I said was accurate. And I knew that would happen. Uh, both of these people, uh, I believe, have applied for jobs in the Trump administration. And the fact that they're loyal to it doesn't come as a surprise to me. I actually like them both. And I would have no problem having a beer with them tomorrow. Uh, so I have people, you know, overwhelmingly in support of me in the Department of Justice. And I have some people who uh, are upset at me and didn't want me to say uh, that and, uh, and take issue with what I say. But I don't believe, and again, I said to you before, it's really important, you know, that prosecutors, they either indict or they don't indict. What Bill Barr did was reprehensible. He should be impeached, I believe, and thrown out of office because, uh, because he's not representing the people of the United States impartially. He's doing it selectively. That's not an indictable offense. You know, Bill Barr, in my mind, has committed no crime. You know, you could argue that there's an obstruction, but I'd have to, I'd have to know what was in Bill Barr's head. Was he really trying to obstruct an investigation? Because you just can't obstruct justice in general. We saw that during the impeachment proceedings. I mean, there has to be something you're trying to obstruct. It's typically a grand jury investigation, a court proceeding, et cetera. And did, uh, is he acting to obstruct justice? I would have to have information of what's his inside his head that I don't have. So while I'd like to join you on that, I can't. And uh, again, maybe I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, but I don't have all the evidence and I don't indict people criminally, you know, and I hope you appreciate this. I absolutely appreciate it. And I do want to bring up because we talked about the election and in little over a week, the election is happening. And in what ways we talked about this, in what ways do you see Bill Barr using the power of his office to interfere in the election and intervene on behalf of Donald Trump? Because one thing that I will tell you, there is no doubt in my mind, just as I placed a bet with Gesser on Joe Biden winning the election, rest assured, and I mean this, rest assured, Donald Trump is not going easily because he knows that once he loses power, that there is going to be an open floodgate, a Pandora's box, a plethora of litigation brought against him and Kushner and Ivanka and Jared and Eric and Don Jr. and the Trump Organization and probably Alan Weisselberg, the CFO, and a half a dozen other animals that have been getting away with all sorts of bullshit for the last four years because they knew that they had the protection of the president and his lapdog, Bill Barr. Okay, uh, let's talk first what we know. You're asking me to speculate as to what might happen, and I'm willing to do that with you, but let's talk about what we know. Uh, already, because this is kind of flown under the radar, and it, it bothers me a lot. Bill Barr has already changed DOJ election policy, and we've had a policy in the Department of Justice for decades that we would not be talking about an investigation or bringing charges of, uh, regarding election fraud right before an election. And the reason for this is self-evident: we don't want to sway an election one way or the other without having all the facts. I think we learned that lesson four years ago with James Comey, when James Comey discussed to the American people possible charges and why he wasn't bringing them and wrongdoing. We don't do that in the Department of Justice. We bring charges, 
or we don't bring charges. That's how it is. We don't go and, and start saying things are wrong, you know, when we don't have hard evidence. And that policy was changed as long as the election fraud involved, and I'm quoting from a government memo, any component of the federal government. Well, the US mail service is a component of the federal government. And that right away leaves in all voter fraud, mail-in votes, you know, and possibilities about that. So it's a hole big enough to drive a truck through. So what Bill Barr is basically saying is we can make announcements about those types of potential cases before the election when we've never done that in the past. That's problematic. And to give you an example of how it can be problematic, again, we've already seen it. A lot of people perhaps didn't pay attention in the 24-hour news cycle, but you maybe remember the story in Pennsylvania where the U.S. attorney in Pennsylvania announced that he thought there was suspected voter fraud because he found nine mail-in ballots, I think, by the side of the road or something. It's turned out, I believe, now that you know several weeks have passed, that it appears, my understanding is that, it was just an accident. They, they were lost. There's no voter fraud. Some mailman might have lost them. There's no charges ever been brought. But yet, that incident was seized upon by Donald Trump, who made allegations of voter fraud, basing it on those nine ballots in Pennsylvania to suggest wide-scale fraud. So we've already seen how the president can weaponize this change by Bill Barr and why it's so important that every citizen not pay attention to these wild claims unless there are you know, accurate charges that are brought based on the evidence, which is the only way that the Department of Justice historically uh, has been allowed to operate. Going forward, we can talk about it. But again, it, it's a parade of horribles. I, for one, am hoping and praying, as I've said, that you're wrong. Now, if I was a betting man, I might be betting on your side. My chips may be on your part of the table that if Donald Trump loses the election, he is going to allege voter fraud. He is going to start filing lawsuits. And most troubling is he's going to try to rile up his base and perhaps, whether it's intentional or unintentional, spark violence in our cities. That is a concern of mine. And as I say, I'm, I'm hoping you're wrong. And again, if he files lawsuits, if that's all he's doing, well, again, I'm a career prosecutor. I've spent my life dwelling in the, the fields of the legal profession. And I saw this play out once before. We all did with Al Gore versus George Bush. Al Gore did what was right. We had a ruling by the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled against him. And he stepped down and he was a gentleman. He never said anything. Because Al Gorefield is a man of principle. Donald Trump is not. I get it. There may be a problem. I'm not saying there isn't, Michael. And I'm just, I'm kind of trying to be cautiously realistic, not even optimistic. I'm just hoping there won't be. I'm hoping it's going to be a landslide such that even Donald Trump won't. Even if it is, it doesn't make a difference. Donald Trump is still going to file. I want to bring it to something which is personal, of course, to me, which was my case and having you know a career prosecutor. Um, with me today, it gives me an opportunity to jump on something that you talked about, which is that all Americans are supposed to be treated equally. And we know that the Department of Justice doesn't do that and that our criminal justice system is in dire need of reform 
in so many different areas. And I'm certain that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be doing that. But I want to bring your attention to something which was personal to me. Guy Petrillo, who was my attorney who represented me in the case that was brought by the Southern District of New York, wrote in the sentencing memo for Judge William H. Pauley III that Cohen had been treated unlike other defendants by prosecutors, noting that Mr. Cohen had the misfortune to have been counsel to the president. It went on to state that in cooperating, I opened myself to the raw, full-bore attacks of the most powerful person in the world. In what ways do you see how my treatment differed from, say, Roger Stone or Mike Flynn? And in what ways did Barr continue to abuse his power in attacking me on behalf of Donald Trump? Because even the ultimate sentence of three years with three years of supervised release, six years, based upon $1.4 million of a tax issue, campaign finance, and some wackadoodle HELOC claim, where, by the way, it should be noted that the $1.4 million tax differential was paid before sentencing, which I got no, no credit for. That money was not anybody else's but my own. When Trump paid $1,500 over those two years, I paid $3 million. So in what way? Do you see Barr continuing to abuse his power and attack me? You know, I want to jump in and say one more thing. In that sentencing memo, there was something I thought that Petrillo and I did, which was rather clever. We took my $1.4 over five years, and we compared it to people like Floyd Money Mayweather, who I'm a huge fan, and I don't mean to bring him up in a negative thing. But his was eighteen or $16.8 million, and his was just handled civilly. I had never had an issue with the IRS before. I have no overseas bank accounts. I have no nominees. I have no overseas business. I've never filed a late tax return. I've never asked for an extension. I've never not paid taxes. And yet, within a 48-hour period, from August 17th to that Monday, the 19th, uh, I'm sorry, the 20th, if I didn't plead guilty, there were finally an 85-page indictment against me that was going to include my wife. This is what Bill Barr is doing which is what he did when they remanded me back to prison. Does any of this sound familiar with any of the experiences that you've had in your entire career? Well, I, I think it's fair to say that the Justice Department, like so many aspects of the American government, treats people somewhat differently depending on how much money they have and how good an attorney uh, they can defend themselves. So that's number one. And I say that even with the fact that I have the highest regard for some of the public defenders and some of the federal defenders uh, that I'm privileged to know and sometimes call my friends. These are great people. Sometimes you get better defense there uh, than you might uh, get for paying for it. But in general, I would say my experience, especially when we're dealing with your type of case, complex white collar crime, if you don't have a lot of money, it's really hard to defend you know, yourself in our system of justice against uh, the government. Now, if you do have a lot of money, if you have unlimited money, you know, then it changes the power dynamic, uh, especially. But going back to your case in particular and, and your question, that's the thing that bothered me the most. And that is, you know, you say, how different it is it? Well, I say it's night and day a lot of times because what I've seen is that if you're the president's friend, if you're Roger Stone 
you get treated very differently than if you're uh, Michael Cohn. That's just how it is. And that's what's troubling to me, that the president has somehow put pressure on the AG so that he can give favorable treatment to uh, the individuals who the president wants favorable treatment to. In your case, Michael, for better or for worse, the, pres- the president was not in your corner and nobody in the department was certainly going to speak up up for you. And that puts you in a very different position than Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, or Michael Flynn. And uh, uh, that's just a matter of fact. And my hope going forward is that starting in uh, just a matter of a couple months, we'll have a new attorney general who will make sure that everybody gets treated fairly, regardless of whether they're Republicans or Democrats. And we'll have a president in place who will reinstitute the norms which were put in place after Watergate and perhaps even strengthen those norms. I'd love to see Congress, in fact, take some control along with the president to ensure that the Department of Justice could never again do the bidding of the president. Uh, I would be all behind laws making it clear that the attorney general had to be independent, that they couldn't be private communications. Uh, that would be great. Uh, you know, That might be going a little too far for some people, but I do think it's really important for the American people that they understand that the justice uh, that they receive is going to be uh, distributed equally. That's what the rule of law means. If rule of law means anything, it means that people are going to be treated fairly and not unfairly, depending on who their friends are, what their political parties are. And that's one of the things that worries me, along with the fact that the president is demonizing the media. That really, uh, and you've probably seen that as well, when people can't see the truth from lies because the president simply calls everything fake news and people believe it, that's a real problem. Without a full free press, we can't have a democracy. Well, fortunately, nobody believes that anymore because, you know, thou doth protest too much and he's the boy who cried wolf just 1,000 too many times. So nobody believes that any longer. Phil, listen, I want to just thank you so much because, um, you know, you've opened up my eyes, that's for sure, um, into this entire Department of Injustice. And as I said before, let's just hope that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris do what we expect them to do, which is to completely reform our broken justice department and prison reform and immigration and all the things that we all hope that Donald Trump was going to do when we were backing him. So Phil, let me thank you again for your time and for your knowledge and your insight. Thank you, Michael. And now for today's mea culpa. I've made no secret of my own loathing of the attorney general. As much as Donald Trump disgusts me as a human being, and I find myself making amends for the mistakes I made as a member of his cult, my hatred for Bill Barr is on a whole other level. This is a man who reached down into the system and sought to prevent me from writing my book, Disloyal, by remanding me back to prison and placing me in solitary confinement in an attempt to silence me. On July 9th, I went to the Manhattan Federal Courthouse expecting to complete routine paperwork related to my home confinement amid the coronavirus pandemic. I had been released just a few months prior on medical furlough and was finishing my sentence at home as the virus raged through the federal prison system. I was in good spirits, accompanied by my lawyer. 
My son was waiting outside in the car, thinking that I would only be a few minutes. Instead, the probation officer present asked me to sign a document that would have barred me from speaking to reporters or publishing a book during the rest of my sentence. Obviously, this was a blatant violation of my First Amendment rights, and I refused to sign the document. I was told to wait, as they kicked the matter up the chain of command. Two hours later, I got my answer back when two marshals descended from the elevator and placed me in handcuffs and shackles, remanding me back to prison. I was immediately thrown into solitary confinement, locked down 24 hours a day for the next 16 days. Those of you who've never spent time in the system cannot possibly imagine the cruelty of solitary confinement. It has been called emotional torture. After a week alone, you begin to question the very fabric of reality. You hear voices that are not there and your mind, if it's fragile to begin with, begins to break. I spent my first days thinking about my family and whether or not I would see them again. I began to wonder if this was not just another form of death and this cell a permanent kind of hell where there was no exit. But in this state of suspended animation, you're neither alive nor dead. Solitary is purgatory and it's cruel and inhumane punishment. Finally though, on day 15 of my confinement, I heard on the radio that my case had been overturned on appeal. The judge ruling that it was an egregious violation of my First Amendment rights, all meant to silence me. I was to be released within 24 hours. The thing is, when you've done that much time inside the hole, you don't think you're ever going to be released. It becomes your permanent reality. But on the 24th hour of the ruling, as a final fuck you to me, I was finally released. The horrific experience of solitary has had a lasting effect on me. Those 16 days spent in solitary, coupled with the previous 35 days I spent in the hole, means I did 51 days total locked in solitary confinement. The time has left emotional scars that have yet to heal, and I'm not sure they ever will. But it has given me an insight and empathy into the plight of others who face the same fucking treatment. It's the reason I'm so vocal about prison reform and why I've taken an interest in helping the family of American political prisoner reality winner. They did not break me in solitary and my goal now is to pay this all forward. But first, I want the people who did this to me and who are doing this to all of us to pay the price for their inhumane actions. Let's win on November 3rd and then make these people face the consequences of their actions. If Donald Trump is going to prison, Bill Barr needs to be right behind him. I pray that this happens, and so should you. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer Jared Gustad. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please register to vote. I'll do my part on this podcast. But to truly make a difference, you must vote this man out of office. So if you're not registered, go do it now and come out and make sure that you vote on November 3rd. <laughs>